Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varley, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the studio. We're still battling through this COVID worldwide pandemic. And we are on the phone via video chat on Instagram from across the pond, a new friend of ours, a new friend of Project Purple, but uh, Sean Walsh. Sean and I have been friends here on social media for a little while, connecting via Twitter. I've been following his journey uh, across the pond. He's over in the UK, and uh, we're excited to finally make this happen, Sean. So thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Oh, I'm really, really, really proud to be here, you know. Um, <clears throat> bit about myself. Um, my name's Sean Walsh. I'm 45, um, from Liverpool, UK. Um, I have a lovely daughter called Darcy, who's seven years of age now, and a lovely partner of 24 years called Rachel. It was um, <clears throat> nearly not two years on now, um, maybe a couple of weeks' time when I first went into hospital. Well, the second time I went into hospital, because the first time when I went into hospital, I was yellow, I had the itch, I, feel, I didn't feel really good at all. So I went to the hospital with my girlfriend and my, well, my daughter, she was five then at the time. So this doctor comes out and he sort of like instigated, you know, like with a needle into his arm as if, you know, I was a heroin user because I'd gone yellow and I was so young and no one could understand it. So I said to my girlfriend, I said, I can't, I can't sit here. I said, I can't listen to this. I said, I feel really, really sick. So, you know, I ended up coming home from then. And it wasn't until um, the 4th of June. I went back in, and as soon as I went back in, something must have been said because my bilirubin levels were so high, um, it was critical stage. So as soon as I got back in the second time, I was pushed straight into a little room, and the chief nurse came in and um, straight away put a cannula in my arm. So for right, so within a couple of hours, I felt I felt a lot better in myself. So in that hospital, I was in the hospital for 10 days. I had many, many scans, started off with an ultrasound scan and then a CT scan, and then I had an endoscopy. Um, and the end, but the endoscopy was quite strange because I was I was awake and then I wasn't awake. And then at the end of it, the guy says, oh, we never found no gallstones. So I went back to my bed. And the following day, my fantastic consultant, Mr. Appleton, came around with his, um, his team. Um, I was sat in bed, and Rachel's my partner was sat next to me. Um, Sean, do you want to come and follow us? And we, we both me and Rachel looked at each other, and we, we knew something was coming. So we get into the room. Um, um, sorry, Mr. Welch, um, we have a, a part of pancreatic cancer called Ampullary um, and Carsona. Um, so we just looked at each other because pancreatic cancer, in my terms, then do you know? You know, people don't survive pancreatic cancer. And even since pancreatic cancer has come into my life, I've asked many, many people, hundreds of people, you know, what do you associate pancreatic cancer with? And I'd say 90% of them associated with old age and too much alcohol. So anyway, I'm sat in the room, um, I've heard the devastating news, um, and Mr. Appleton, my consultant, turns around and says, oh, you can have this Whipple operation, um, where they take your bio, most of your bile ducts out, um, the head of my pancreas, um, my gallbladder, and all my small intestines, um, you come away with a big scar and um, drains and bags of side where you'd have to release the juice sort of thing. So I thought, right, I've got a chance, you know, we've got a chance here. But his next words are like, Sean, you've got to stay the night. He said, we've got to scan you again tomorrow to make sure that I can spread into, you know, other parts of my body so I can be eligible for the Whipple operation. So I said, Rachel, I said, I can't stay on my own tonight. I said, I just found out. So 
the hospital were fantastic, you know, they put a bed next to my bed so Rachel could stay the night. So the following day, <coughs> excuse me, I went for um, another CT scan. But I got it in my head at the time, because my last CT scan, it took like 45 minutes. So on the Friday, I must have been in the scanner for like 10 minutes. And I came out and I thought, in my hand of heart, I thought, I'm fine, because I would have been in there a lot longer. So it comes home, um, that was the 14th of June, uh, 2018, I came home. Um, knowing that I had the chance for this Whipple operation. So in the meantime, I found out who was going to do my Whipple operation. Um, Rob Jones, the guy called Declan Dunn. So I thought, obviously, I'm putting my hands in his, uh, my my life in his hands by doing this massive, massive operation. I've heard so much about it. I never Googled the operation, but I did Google Declan Dunn. And he's got this video on there. Um, four years previous, he just qualified as a surgeon. He was coming home um, the first day on the job sort of thing and he got knocked off his bike um, he nearly got decapitated he had smashed vertebrae his hip went up into his body it was a massive massive operation that he had to do when he came back and I thought right he's been my inspiration since then you know, I thought right I can put my life in his hands so I'd say um, about six days later I went to meet Declan Dunn and my pancreatic nurse Phil Whelan um, where they explained what the operation was about and recovery time and you know, um, it's up to you once you've had the operation, it's down to you for recovery. So for fine, I will have this. So the following Monday, I went in Monday night, um, ready for the Whipple on a Tuesday. And the Whipple was a resounding success. It came out of, um, well, I woke up in ICU. And, um, I was just glad to be alive. I lifted my seat up, looked down, and thought, you know, it's done now, you know, the cancer's gone, hopefully. So, right, it's up to me. Um, so I was in hospital for six days. And then was home, you know, because I missed my daughter's birthday on a Saturday. And I've been daughter on the phone, um, opening the presents and telling me what she she got for the birthday. And I was obviously I was in bits in the hospital. Even the guys I met in the next bed were like, "Oh, do you want us to pull the curtain around the No, I said I'm alive, you know. And it's tears of joy, sort of thing. Okay, can't be with my little girl, but I promised myself my partner's birthday was the following Tuesday. So I promised myself I'm getting out of here on Monday. So Monday comes along. And my surgeon, Declan, comes up, he said, Sean, have you been in the toilet, you know, to, to have a number two? I went, no, Declan. I said, I haven't been yet. He went, OK, he said, I'll come back and see you tomorrow. So in the meantime, this nurse had overheard what's been going on. So she said, Sean, do you want a supposed seat? I said, yeah, fine, yeah. So within 15 minutes, you know, I went to the toilet. It was only a little one, but I went to the toilet and seen Declan walking past the waving. I'll see you tomorrow, I went, hey, come here, you. So what's wrong? This is being a toilet, goes away, signs with things, right, go on, get home. It's up to you now to recover from this operation. He said, I've done my job. So the next, I'd say, five, six weeks, you know, horrendous. You know, I couldn't walk, I couldn't really eat, you know, it was bad pains and I was on all these tablets and, you know, I'll speak about one I want to speak about later on if you want to include, you know, my beliefs in CBD, etc. But I did start taking CBD, um, I took after the Whipple operation. So, 10 weeks after the Whipple operation, I started taking, um, started my chemo, um, Gen, Gen, Gen Capacetabine, um, for six months. Sorry. So, Sean, I, I'm going to jump in here real quick. So, you, this happened all in 2018, but it was relatively pretty quick from when you got diagnosed to when you got in for a Whipple, though. So, yeah, really. I mean, just looking at this timeline, again, I'm taking notes here for our listeners at home. So it was June 4th, you went in, and then 10 days later, 
you were, you know, meeting with Declan and then boom, you had the, the Whipple pretty quickly there. And then you had this. No, the, 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 fourth, the 4th of June, I went into Wiston um, and I came out of Wiston diagnosed with cancer on the 14th of June. 14th. Okay. And then 12 days, 12 days later, I had my Whipple operation on the 26th of June. Wow. So within less than, a, you know, 30 days, I mean, less than 20 days, you were able to go from diagnosis to surgery, which is phenomenal because, I mean, you know, and I, mean, I know this is 2018, which, you know, we're, we're fast forward here, but, you know, there's people sometimes that here in the States, they go months and months and months of misdiagnosis, um, you know, gallbladder removal, uh, you know, this, that, or that thing. And then finally, you know, the light bulb goes off and, and they're able to have surgery. So to know that within less than a month, you went from diagnosis to surgery is pretty impressive. Now, I, I got a question and, and I know hindsight is always twenty twenty, And I've said that a lot here on this podcast when I, when I ask this question, do you think looking back that you were symptomatic prior to June 4th of 2018? Yeah. Um, just going back to misdiagnosis, um, as you know, I've done that swim. We'll talk about the swim later on when I was halfway through chemotherapy when I've done the swim for um, Pancreatic Cancer UK. But in the meantime, we have a group on Facebook called Whipple Warriors in the UK. Yeah. And I became good friends with a lady called Rebecca Ashton. And Rebecca, sadly, isn't with us no more. But she came to me swim after the Whipple operation. I think she'd been home for two weeks and we became really good friends. Really good friends. You know, we were on the phone for like an hour, two hours, you know, just putting the world to rights. And she too, she got misdiagnosed with gallbladder. Mm -hmm. So she had to wait four weeks to go back to a different hospital and she got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So then four weeks, you know, I volunteer for Pancreatic Action, as you know, and we're trying to fight for 21 days. You know, I was 20 days, but, you know, to get to 21 days, it's, you know, but going back to your question, in me, Rebecca, and there's another guy called Steve Kelly, who's a good friend of mine now. We've all had the Whipple operation, and we've all said the same. I've had this pain when I bent over, I reckon, about four or five years before I got diagnosed, and them two had the same sort of pain. Just like when you bent, it's like, like someone is stabbing in the top of the ribcage. What also, we also had the same as well. We had, like, especially me, I had the pain. I'm like, the left-hand side of my ribcage... But it'll come and go. And even thinking back, me and my partner thinking, well, if it was something bad like cancer, it'd be there permanently. And there's a lot more people that have had them same sort of symptoms. But I think going back, the first symptom really hand on heart was broken sleep. Mm. And I spoke to professors in Liverpool when we have cancer forums in Liverpool. And I've spoke to professors one to one. And he went, sure, he said, it's unbelievable. Across the board, different cancers, unbroken sleep is one of the first symptoms sort of thing. And as you know, We'd be campaigning for better awareness and raising awareness, you know. Hopefully we are we are starting to save lives. We've seen that, you know, the success rate go from seven percent to ten percent. Okay, it hasn't moved really for forty years and with people like myself surviving and being raising awareness on Twitter. But definitely, definitely I had these symptoms, that pain symptom I'd, I'd say at least three years before I got diagnosed, you know. So if we did if I did my math right. You're 45, so you were 43 when you were diagnosed, 
And then if you go back five years from 43, that puts you, you know, late thirties, like 38, uh, 39 in that range. And and I just want to be correct with the math because I think, you know, you said it, like everyone thinks that this disease is an old person's disease and we're talking about 38, you know, that's a young you know, you're, you're not even at midlife crisis, you know, now midlife mm-hmm. is 50 because you know, that, that bar is <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I've seen people in, especially America. And I don't know why people are getting diagnosed so young in America, but there's people there in like the late twenties. Yeah. Having the whipple operation and I know it's totally different in America with, with all the medical that you'd have to pay for and stuff like that. But I think people, you know, I think it was like lifestyles as well. Um, because I haven't told you my cancer came about because, as soon as Declan, my surgeon, see him, he put, he put me on Creon straight away, even before mm-hmm. the Whipple. He said, Sean, he said, you've had a power, um, because you haven't got your enzymes or your nutrients for mostly most of your life out your food, maybe, it's um, produced a polyp, which is turning cancers. And as I say, me, I'm polyvata. And I was like thinking about it. But we think as well that me, me granddad, my dad's dad, we think he died of pancreatic cancer. But you wouldn't know because my granddad died late 70s. You know, and as you yeah. say, you know, the survivor rate hasn't really moved in the seven, since the 70s sort of thing. I don't know if the, um, if you know a lady called Maggie Watts, Hope is Contagious. You might have seen her on Twitter. She runs, she's been running this Hope is Contagious, like a pancreatic cancer charity sort of thing because she lost her husband 10 years ago. And the big thing is in like 10, 20, 30 years, you know, survivor rates haven't improved. But I think the more awareness and get the symptoms out quicker and quicker, you know, like pancreatic cancer action, they've been educating um, general practitioners, the doctors in Northern Ireland about six months ago, you know, let's get people, you know, from the GP, let's get them diagnosed from the GP because, you know, my GP was fantastic. He knew something was wrong. And even to this day, everything could be in for you. You know, you see me come out of the operation, I look like the Terminator, and I'm still scared of needles. Mm. And that's one of the biggest things why I didn't go in. Do you know, and I think it's people's perceptions and people's lives nowadays. You know, people are too busy. You know, people haven't got time to go to doctors. But you know, if you ever in doubt, get checked out. It's, it's simple, isn't it? You know, you know, it's it's got to be done, hasn't it? You know. Yeah, but I think you know the the one thing. You know, you you mentioned there that's so powerful for our audience listening at home is just the awareness, right? And so that's where I think I go back to, you know, being 38. You know, again, hindsight's always 2020, and I'm not trying to beat you up here, Sean. You know, it, it, you know, and I think you mentioned, you know, the GPs, and I think that's something that you know this podcast with the groups, you know, all the groups out there that are are trying to raise awareness because everyone needs to be aware, not just you know, we're talking about people in their thirties and their twenties to be aware of themselves. Like, Hey, if something doesn't feel right, you're not sleeping well, or, you know, it could be anything. It could just be like an aversion to certain foods, you know, and you're not pregnant. Um, that, you know, that potentially could mean that something's going on. But I think as a society, at least here in the United States with everything that's happening in life, and especially now in a pandemic, we just think, Hey, I'm stressed. It's nothing. It'll go away in in a couple of weeks where those could be telltale signs. But then I think, you know, the other part of this, which, you know, it, it frustrates the hell out of me. And this is, you know, a little bit personal for me. Like my dad's situation was that, you know, he was misdiagnosed for six to eight months, maybe even longer. He had his gallbladder removed. They told him he had gout. They told him he had all these other issues. And then finally, they said he had pancreatic cancer. So, you know, we've got to do a better job from, 
you know, the consumer end from the public of people being aware of this. And also from the general practitioner that we've got to like, let these guys know they've got to notice these telltale signs. And yeah, they are very vague because, you know, abdominal pain can be a million things, right? But at least they should be asking the questions, right? And building that narrative and advocating for patients, you know, to go the extra mile and not just put it aside to say, well, it's the pandemic, everyone's stressed, everyone's not eating right, everyone has abdominal pain right now because of this situation. No, you need to take that a step further. So I want to get back to, so you go, uh, get back to where we were talking here about the story because it's fascinating here you have the whipple it's a it's a huge surgery for those that are listening that have heard people talk about it here on the podcast before that are that have been fortunate to have it you heal up and then you do chemotherapy post and how was the chemotherapy um the chemotherapy was harsh you know at the start it wasn't too bad um I remember the first time I went in for my chemotherapy, you know, when I was the youngest in there. And I said to my partner, you know, why am I the youngest in there? And I started beating myself up about it. But the next time I went, I thought, well, I am the youngest. It, it, it is helping me, sort of thing. Um, but I got speaking to a lot of people, you know, in, in chemotherapy. You know, we're all in the same sort of boat for all the different cancers in there. And I got really, really good friends with most of the nurses in there, you know, they were always fighting over me as soon as I came in because they always had good veins. So they were always fighting, oh, I want to do short today, I want to do short today. <laughs> and I remember the last ever infusion that I had and they took my cannula out and I was just sat there and in the little comfy chair and I felt so at ease and so comfortable in the care what the, the lovely nurses had given me. I didn't want to move. Even though I was sat there in a Spider-Man costume, you know, I didn't want to move because I've always been called Spider, Spider Walsh, Spider Walshy because I've built industrial units, you know, massive warehouses all my life, you know, going back 25 years ago when it started, we had no nets, it was like, come on son, follow me, and me, me walking like over four inch steel, 80 foot in the air behind me dad, and so that's where I got the name from. So my last infusion, you know, obviously I don't know if you do it in America, but in the UK we ring the bell. You know, yep. to you know, to, yeah, to read to whatever's yeah. on sign. I didn't really read the sign. So I got dressed up as Spider-Man. My little girl's there as Batgirl, so I'm there, put my mask on and ringing the bell sort of thing. But that's that's been good, you know, raising awareness. Always Spider Wall, she is Spider-Man, you know, and so I've kept that going sort of thing. So yeah, the chemo was harsh, you know, they said to me, um, you don't have to have it Christmas Eve, you don't have to have it New Year's Eve and I was like, No, I want it done, I wanna get this over. But leading up to this, I done that. Um, I done a two kilometer swim. I started chemotherapy in the September, uh, ten weeks after my whipple, and I needed the focus. You know, so I'm lying in bed one night and I seen the cancer awareness month in November in the UK. And I thought, right, I'll do something here. I know I do a two kilometer swim because after my whipple, I couldn't walk for like I'd say at least six six to eight weeks. So we went on a holiday only for the weekend away, and they had the pool in the hotel. And my scar had just healed. It was just started, all the scabs had fell off. And I was really critical about going to the pool, everyone looking at my scar. And people did look at my scar, for fair enough. But I just walked down the pool and I felt so good when I come out. So as soon as I come home, I joined the local gym, started going to the pool. The first week I was just walking around every day. 
the second week I started swimming again and I was like, wow, I can swim, you know. So I built it up and built it up. And then November the 26th, um, I managed to say, I managed to do a two kilometer swim for um, Pancreatic Cancer UK. Um, it was on Twitter. Um, and then I got pally with a few celebrities, ex footballers, like we used to play for Everton Football Club, um, Liverpool Football Club, um, other celebrities, and they were backing me. So after me swim, you know, we, we were going to like 10 to 12 million people a week, raising awareness, you know, the Simpsons and, you know, people who've had the whip, look what you can do. Because when I had the whip, there was no one there. There was no information to tell me other people have had the whip, only for me finding like UK Whipple Warriors on Facebook. I wouldn't have known what to do and what to do and what not to do. But doing that swim, it took it out to me. And I'd say, oh, December and January when I finished my chemo, I was, I was, I was done and I was really, really tired you know, that swim and everything else. And as you know, the chemo, the chemo gets harder, you know, because the further along you go. So at the end, I'd had enough sort of thing, but all my bloods were fantastic. Um, I even stopped my anti-sickness, my anti-diarrhea. I didn't even take one anti-diarrhea tablets. And I'd say after the third cycle, I even stopped all my steroids because they were keeping me up all night. So I would just stop everything, and that's where the CBD came into effect. You know, it helped me so much. And there's people out there now who are on the CBD and they're doing the chemotherapy, and you know the way they've come on so much, it's it's unbelievable. That's why I'm going for now CBD with chemotherapy because I thought if you can get the chemotherapy through, you're better. You know, with the CBD, you know, you can stay at eighty percent, a hundred percent of the chemo. You know, either pre-whipple, post-whipple, for any cancer, it's it's been amazing for people. But we can talk about that in a different time if you want. No, no, we're gonna we're gonna get there. I want to go back to so the swim. So were you a swimmer before? How active were you before? I mean, we've heard some amazing stories of people who are, you know, we had a guy on our podcast. He never ran a marathon before and he's sitting there post-surgery after his Whipple and he told his wife that he was going to run a marathon and she thought it was the anesthesia that was telling him, you know, saying this. No, we haven't. I used to swim when I was like 15, 16, but to tell you, see, if I haven't swam since I was about 16, as I say, but going back to that guy that you just mentioned, I think because you've been so low, you know, I'm trying to walk around the hospital after my whipple, you know, I've got my partner pushing me back in and lifting my neck up and I'm struggling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think if you're that low, you've been that low, you know, you've been to that dark place, you're thinking once I'm out of this dark place, I'm going to do something I've never done before. Do you know what I mean? So that's why I thought I could do this swim sort of thing because it helped me out so much. You know, after the whipple, as I say, just walking down the pool and then managing to swim. But um, I don't know if you've seen the swim. The last length, um, I managed to put my daughter Darcy on my back because obviously because I started swimming again, I started taking her and teaching her how to swim and now she's a better swimmer than me sort of thing. We even had to go out the other day and buy um, a hot tub because, unbelievably, because I haven't been swimming for like two months and going to like the jacuzzi because normally I do like 40, 50 lengths and then I have a little span and do another 40, yeah. 50 lengths. But because of, of COVID-19, I've started all my scars, started seizing up, you know, scar tissue. Yeah. So I've been in the hot tub for a couple of days just doing some exercises and I feel like 100% better again. So it's critical, you know, to exercise after Whipple if you can. It's critical to exercise prehab rehab is you know it's it's paramount as my as my surgeon says <laughs> well that's a, that's a powerful statement there sean because i think you know we have seen a correlation at least i have um, you know we've interviewed a lot of survivors and fighters and um all of them I would say about 90% have talked about exercise and the benefits of exercise in a positive way now granted 
exercise before they became ill may have looked a lot different versus while they're fighting or post uh, just because of, you know, the chemotherapy, you know, builds this toxicity over time. And as you take more chemotherapy, you tend to have a little bit less energy and you might have some other side effects. And so, but there's a, there's really something powerful and I don't have enough data to validate this. I'd love to do a project, a side project on this where, you know, we have seen from talking to so many survivors and fighters that there are some large commonalities that people talk about in a very positive way that have helped them get through this journey, exercise being one of them. And I, I think that's really powerful because I think, you know, at least here in the United States, Sean, people hear cancer and then they, they almost shut down, you know, and I think like there, there's a, a ton of benefit to working out. And especially, you know, from an immune system standpoint, you know, you're battling cancer. And again, I'm not advocating that people go to the gym, especially now with COVID-19, but you know, there, there's something to be said about working out, getting your endorphins, moving muscles, flushing things out, you know, so it's, it's, it's great to hear that you were able to get into a pool and, and to be, and to see the benefits of that, you know, post Whipple and also with the fighting of the cancer. Now, I've got a question here going back to the swim. You have that Whipple in June of 2018. This swim happens in 2019? No, it was five months after me, Whipple. Oh, my God. So five months post-Whipple, you decide to swim 2K. That's insane. So, no, as I say, it's, it's just it's one of them. You know, you know, I had to have a focus. I had to have a focus, and I thought, you know, I know what this chemo was going to do to me. I, I know, I know, I've been told by my um, surgeons, been told by loads of people, it's been proven now that exercise does shrink cancer tumors, you know, because as you say, you're getting your endorphins working, yeah. you know, your immune system's raising up. Um, and that's where I want to really come back to the CBD. You know, I am now, like, I'm, I'm a member of a Supreme CBD company in the UK. Um, he's a boxer called Anthony Fowler. He's been really good to me, you know, been to watch him fights after me whip or blah de blah But on the internet, um, and even in, like, Holland and Barris in the UK, you know, the CBD is rubbish, you know. You, you're getting rubbish. So I'm fighting now to get this Supreme CBD. Hopefully, I'm going to, after the COVID-19, I want to have a meeting with Clatterbridge because they were going to sign and introduce it, Macmillan, etc. But even, even going through chemotherapy, you know, I spoke to a lot of people who were doing really good on the chemo, taking CBD, and it's not cannabis oil, CBD, it's from the hemp plant. And you look at all the benefits of CBD, you know, um, it, it, it produces a better appetite, you know, mm -hmm. it, it sort of improves your immune system. Um, anxiety, depression, you know, that goes without saying with the chemo and not knowing if the cancer comes back. Um, fibromyalgia, um, there's there's that many benefits of CBD, you know, but I'm hoping, hopefully, in the year or two, it should be part of your chemo regime. Instead of giving people diarrhea and sickness tablets, I think I took five sickness tablets through the six months. You know, every month I go back, oh, do you want these tablets? No, no, no. The only ones on the CBD. And even before I started my CBD, I asked my oncologist about CBD when Sean go for it. And I'm so glad he did because most of the medical professions in England, you know, they'll say, oh, it's not medically proven. Well, hold on. I'm sitting here. There's other people, you know, benefiting from CBD. You know, there's that many stories about CBD and all the fascinating results people have got. 
But people are saying rubbish CBD and going, and that's where CBD is getting a bad name. It's sort of like raising awareness of pancreatic cancer in conjunction with the symptoms, exercise, and hopefully trying to get CBD involved as well. That's 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 my hope anyway. So how did you, and you know, before we started recording, we are always full disclosure here. We're always honest and, and there's no subject that uh, we don't... Uh, allow people to talk about because I think it's important. And I've always said on the podcast, if something works for someone and we can share that information and it works for someone else to beat this freaking thing, I'm all for it. And, and people have mentioned CBD. Uh, people have mentioned medical marijuana. Um, I'm not, uh, again, anything that can help someone battling pancreatic cancer, this is what this podcast is about and to educate people. So how did you find out about CBD? Was this something that you started? So that's the first question is how you found out about it, but then when did you start it? I found out about CBD and RSO as well, even though I only took RSO for about a week. About two weeks after my blood operation, I was in that much pain, you know, so I had to take a bit of the RSO. But this came about off a nurse, I'd just been diagnosed on the first day with pancreatic cancer and this nurse came over crying. She was only young, say she was about 19. And she went, Sean, she said, have you heard of CBD? So, well, I have actually, because my dad has got um, cerebellar attacks here. He's in a wheelchair. He can't walk. He can't talk now. So I was looking at trying to get him onto a sort of thing. So we had a little bit of an idea. But as soon as the nurse came over to me and she said, Sean, she said, I've got rheumatoid arthritis. I went, I said, you're only 19. She said, if I didn't take CBD, I wouldn't be able to come and work as a student nurse. You know, that's so that's, I, just, I got that in my head and I thought, right, I'm getting on this after my Whipple. I asked my surgeon before Whipple, he went, no, after your Whipple, do what you want, it's your recovery, he said, but let me do what I want to do. But with the, the RSO, the cannabis oil, it lowers your blood pressure, so it was a bit, do you know what I mean, sort yeah. of thing. But CBD, CBD's been amazing, absolutely amazing, mate. So did you do some research in the CBD world to find, because I, I find, and I, I know very little about CBD. I mean, we, we do a lot with marathons. We do a lot with fitness. So now there's a lot of players, not in the marathon community yet, which I'm not surprised. And maybe the pandemic has pushed some of this back, but um, we do a lot with like CrossFit. And I know in the CrossFit community, CBD in terms of um, recovery is gigantic. Um, I was at the CrossFit Games, which is an international event last year in Wisconsin, and there had to be 15 different companies selling CBD recovery, you know, as part of their, their programs of recovery, whether it was nutrition, whether it was, you know, a powder, it quite possibly was even a cream that you rub on. And now I, I've seen, you know, just from being involved in that space, there's so many companies now that are, you know, marketing this to the masses. You know, it's no longer something that they were just marketing to athletes, um, you know, that compete, whether it was professionally or, you know, people who think they're professional athletes competing or working out, but now it's marketed to everyone. So it, I find personally that it's so overload like there's so many players here in the united states jumping on the cbd wagon um you know that uh that I, I don't even know what to look for so what did yeah, you it's do confusing. yeah yeah it's confusing yeah now um, as i say I'm, I'm i'm affiliated member of supreme cbd uk now and the guy that put me onto that was um, he's a commonwealth olympic boxer and he still boxes now his name's anthony fowler but oh, there's yeah. lots there's lots of boxers yeah, yeah anthony fowler 
and there's lots lots of boxers on it um, in the UK now, Do you know, there's loads of different sportsmen who are on that sort of thing, because as you know, there's no THC in it, I think there's no. 0.02% THC in it, so, you know, if people are having, you know, anxiety problems, or people have got, like, sore backs, you know, I've got, I've got like, a little pot, yeah, I get it for, you know, <clears throat> and even if you don't want to take the oil, and you sent me these over, you see them? Yeah. Little gummy bears. Yeah, the gummy bears, yeah. And the girlfriend's had bad sciatica, so he sent some over. So she has three of them a day, and she's been on them for what about two weeks now. And the sciatica is like it's better by like seventy percent, just by taking the jelly. Wow. You know, there's no side effects. There's no side effects. There's no nothing. And as I say, hopefully on the chemotherapy, and even after the whipples, you know, because you can't eat properly, you don't want to eat. You know, and it does help your appetite, CBD, as long as your recovery. Mm-hmm. Your immune therapy, your immune system. I look at your body being inside your body as a, like a like a pylon carrying electricity all around your body with your cannabinoid receptors. And once you get on the CBD and it hits these cannabinoid receptors, it's like it makes you it just makes you feel a lot better. You know, don't you don't feel like stoned or you know it's it's there to help. You know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I my beliefs of CBD is immense. You know, I know what it's done for me. I know if I didn't take CBD, I wouldn't have been doing that swim. I would have been taking steroids all through my chemotherapy. I'd be taking anti-diarrhea tablets because I'd be having diarrhea and I'd be being sick. And I had none of that, you know. So, you know, it's, it's, not, hard, it's not hard to work it out, is it? You know, all right, you've got to have a, a lot of positivity, you know, and exercise as well. But hand in hand with the CBD and a decent diet. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. I mean, and again, you know, we don't, uh, we don't hold back. And, and I've always said, you know, if something works uh, and you really, I, I think, you know, we're in a funny time in our world where there's a lot of, um, distrust in our political figures worldwide. There's a lot of distrust in the medical community because of this pandemic. Is it safe to go out? Is it not safe? Um, and, and I think that could be said for a lot of things. So I've always told families and patients and for those listening that you have to find what's best for you. And I, I think that's almost a frustrating thing with this disease too, is that there's not a, a one size fits all glove. And people really have to advocate for themselves with the medical community and then beyond the medical community to maybe find things that help. And whether that's CBD, whether that's meditation, whether it's yoga, exercise, um, which everyone should do in some, some aspect, but these other things, these holistic things. You know, you have to go out and find them. And and really, unfortunately, it, it's sad because they're not offered to you, right? Like the medical community is not going to say, hey, Sean, you should try this. Um, do you ever no. think back, if that nurse didn't say that to you, do you think you would have gotten to CBD, Sean? I'm sure that maybe that conversation's passed um, your mind. Um, you know what? I haven't really thought about it, you know. Um, I, think, I think I would have, but as soon as that nurse said that to me, you know, and it was funny because I've seen it um, because my parents haven't been too good. They're okay now. But um, my mum was on the same ward and i seen the same nurse and she came over and gave me a big hug. So this is like nearly two years on and she qualified. You know, she was a student nurse and she went, have a look. And she's all made up, you know, showing her a new, a new, a new suit that she's just got. And I just said, thank you so much. I said, because without you, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now, do you know? Do you know what I mean? Right? Mm. I'm still slim, you know, I'm finding it hard to keep um, keep weight on sort of thing. 
but um, I'm just really, you know, I'm just really glad to still be here, to tell you the truth. Um, as I say, we go back to the chemo. Do you know, I finished the chemo in January, I think, the end of January 2019. So I thought, right, what can I do next? So I started um, a little campaign and I didn't even know someone in America had done it. Um, it's like hand standing up to cancer, feet in the air, be symptom aware. So I, I had everyone doing it. My surgeons were doing it. I even went to Liverpool Football Club. They let me in. I was in the cop doing it. I went to the museum with the European Cup. I don't know if the Americans know about Liverpool Football Club. I know you know about the Beatles. Well, we know we know football from the the football, not the European football. So I, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of listeners. I mean, I think now, like yeah, you know, yeah. I think football. So I, everyone yeah, thinks so it's the football. We started doing that, you know, just to put another spin on raising awareness and, you know, that sort of went quite ballistic, you know, so I've been thinking to myself, what can I do next sort of thing? But as you know, on Twitter, I've had some great, great people, you know, helping helping the cause out, Andy Fowler, um, Neville Southall, you know, people like Neville Southall, they've got like 300,000 followers. If he does a retweet on Twitter for us, that goes to like 20,000 people and someone else does it, someone else does it. And before you know it, that tweet with the symptoms of pancreatic cancer, it's gone to like a million people. Do you know what I mean? So I think social media, and especially with people being stuck in the house most most of the day nowadays, you know, it's 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 prime time now to get these symptoms up there. You know, don't be scared of going to the GPs. You know, let's let's try and get them. You know, diagnosed through the GPs and not in the hospitals. But I read last night in the UK since COVID nineteen started, um, an extra five thousand people have died of cancer, and over thousand people a day get diagnosed with cancer. But you know, the, the referrals going forward for the Whipples in my hospital, you know, I think they've done one or two last week, you know, which is, you know, they normally do a lot more than that. So I think the referrals now are down like 70% going forward in the future, which is, you know, that's scary, you know, that is really scary. It's crazy. It's crazy so, what this is doing to our medical community across the world, how things have just shut down. And, and what the hope is, and, and this is what, you know, our group and all the other groups in the world, uh, we've talked a lot via email that, uh, you know, we cannot forget this patient population that are fighting and also um, the patients that are being diagnosed because as we all know, pancreatic cancer doesn't stop or any cancer doesn't stop because there's a global pandemic. Um, you know, so that's where, you know, all these efforts are, are just really, really critical right now. COVID is a very serious thing and, and we hope that they do figure out a plan and, and you know, uh, a vaccine possibly, you know, sooner than later for all of us in the world listening and that, that you know, hopefully will happen. But cancer is such a critical concern right now for all of us and in particular for us, pancreatic cancer, because yeah. unfortunately, I think that, you know, a lot of people are just not going to the centers because they don't want to catch COVID. And whether that's the media or whether that was told by leaders early on to stay out of the centers, uh, I don't think has been communicated properly to come back, you know, and, and to not ignore these signs, quite frankly. I mean, I have my own personal personal opinion. I think that, you know, the media here in the U.S. has scared us all. I mean, this is a very serious thing, but, you know, people also need to be aware of if they are sick, they should be going to see their doctors. They should be going to the centers. Um, they are, you know, they've done, I know a lot of the centers here in the United States, a lot of the major centers that we work with have all opened back up. But I think they're really struggling to get the patient population back because there's this trust issue of, you know, if I go in to see my GP, I'm going to get sick. 
you know, and we've got to, we've got to try to work beyond that. So it's, it's just really crazy. Sean, I've got a question here for you. So you finished chemo in 19. Here we are a year and a half later. How's life been? I mean, you know, I mean, what are you doing? You know, you're not currently on treatment. No, no. Um, normally, you have to go and see um, me surgeon, Declan, every three months. Yep. You know, in, in the UK, we don't go off scans. We go off the bloods. We go off the CA99 cancer marker. So I don't go and see him every three months. Um, I never really have to go and see him every six months now because he thinks, you know, I get, I get like anxiety, really bad anxiety, you know, building up to it every three or so forth, right? Not doing it. He said, I'm okay, it's come every six months. I went, yeah, he said, but in the meantime, if you feel a bit bloated or you feel a bit sick, he said, phone us straight away. I've got his personal number, um, my pancreatic nurse, he's been fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Um, and as you know, Liverpool is one of the world-leading pancreatic centres. You know, mm-hmm. we've got a boss team, you know, and I'm, I was so lucky. And I think half the problem in the UK as well, Matt, um, do you know, is it's a postcode lottery. You know, if you live down south, it's a lovely, lovely place to live. But the hospitals, you know, the care's, the care's not there. Um, I'm slowly getting back to work part-time um, the last couple of months, sort of thing. Um, as I say, I've, I've built warehouses for 23 years. You know, that was my career. You know, I earned a good career out of that. But obviously, that's gone now. You know, I miss all the lads on the building sites because obviously I can't be putting big roofs on with like um, individual sheets weighing like 100, 150 kilo like I used to be able to say, you know, I can't do it. You know, hernias are going to, you know, and I just can't do it. But my lifestyle now is a lot better. Um, before COVID-19, I used to take my daughter to school and pick her up every day, you know, and the little things in life mean a lot more to me now. You know, I don't worry about much, you know. I don't. I only worry about stuff that I can, um, I've got something to do about it, you know, if I can help, you know. I don't worry about other things, about money or... You know, at the end of the day, what we've all been through, my partner and my little daughter, you know, when we heard down words, pancreatic cancer, I, I, we came downstairs after he'd done the draw, and I said, Rachel, if I die, I said, make sure you meet someone that'll look after my daughter, you know, and that's the way I am, you know, I get things out there straight away, you know, with your family, you know, a lot of people don't really like me sort of thing, but because I'm too outspoken, but you think, you know, I put loads, I put loads of stuff on Twitter about CBD helping me and, you know, I've done all this for um, Pancreatic Cancer UK and I've done this and I've done that, but no one's ever come back to me and go, hold on, Sean, let's look into this CBD a bit more. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer we're going for with, with CBD and the holistic therapies. Like, I went for massages and reikis in um, a cancer centre in Heighton, where I live in Liverpool, but I didn't even know that centre was there. As you said before, there's no signposting. It's only because a friend of my sister's dad used to go there that died a couple of weeks before and I thought, so... So I went in there and they were fantastic in there and we'd go have a little massages and have a cup of tea with them and, you know, it was really nice. But, um, no, mate, life's good. You know, why why can't life be good? I'm still here. You know, I've got a second bite of the cherry. Um, I know the prognosis is not good going forward for me. They reckon I've only got a 50% chance of getting to five years or whatever it is. But, you know, I only had a 7% chance of the whip operation. So me and my family in our house don't do stats no more. You know, you know I'm here to break stats. I'm here to help people, you know. After the Whipple, you know, look what Sean's done, you know. If he can do it, you can do it, you know. I'm not saying everyone has the same operation as me. You know, I know people have the whole pancreas removed and people have the, um, the spleen removed as well. You know, like my friend Steve, he was in the hospital for 10 or 12 weeks because he kept on having bleeds. And unbelievably, my surgeon finally done his last operation and sorted them out. 
And I don't know what your fe- feelings is about Whipple operations, Dino, but I think it's like anything else oh, in the world. Oh. You know, you get football players or soccer players that are better than each other. So do you get surgeons that are better than each other? I don't know. I don't know. But one thing I don't believe in is this robotic Whipple surgery. I don't believe in that. I know you come out with a little scar and recovery's quicker. But as you know, um, my margins around my tumour were all clear. All my lymph nodes were clear. They took 15 lymph nodes out. And Declan seen a dodgy lymph node in my jejunal. And he thought, that looks a bit dodgy. I'll whip that one out. And that was the only one that came back. And no one can explain how it's jumped over the wall. The lymph node, the cancer, and ended up in my jejunal. Hmm. No one can explain it to me. So it's good to happen. That happens to me, mate. If anything ever goes wrong, it's always me. <laughs> sort of thing. But I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I think, you know, uh, you know, the robotic Whipple, I, I know people have talked about that and I don't think there's enough data to validate, you know, which is better. I think the one thing that I have always advocated to families that are eligible for the Whipple here in the United States, it's one in five, you know, is that you really find someone who does this, you know, for a living, not just a generalist, right? And there's some surgeons and, and I always give the example and for those listeners at home that maybe have heard this before on the podcast, you know, I remember sitting there with my dad and his surgeon and he was a good surgeon, but you know, hindsight being 2020, I, I asked that question. I said, how many of these do you do? And he goes, oh, I do about one a month. You know, and so at the time I was like, wow, that seems like a lot, you know, not knowing. And I didn't go to the internet. We didn't do anything. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, now, you know, you talk to some surgeons here in the United States, they do, you know, well, pre COVID, you know, one of our top surgeons, you know, was doing three a week, you know, so that, that just gives you kind of an idea, you know, and, and I've always yeah. said to patients, you know, if you want someone, you know, you want an expert, you want someone who does this every week, you know, that sees these things that, you know, may look at a lymph node that, oh, that doesn't look right, you know, you know, because I've done one last week or I've done one a week for the last, you know, three years or five years, as long as they've been a clinician, you know, is really, really important. I asked him, um, I asked my surgeon, do you know about that? I said, how did you know it was dodgy? He went, I could just feel it. You know, I could feel it. But going back to, um, as you say, about the surgeons doing whipples, there's one of our surgeons, Dr. Biden from the Liverpool University Hospital, and he does more whipples. Um, I think it was last month or the month before the Leeds Hospital put together on his own. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like Declan and my surgeon Rob Jones there, just like they're all like looking into like forward stuff. Like yeah. Declan's scar now, I think his scar's on like six inches instead of 12 inches. Because last time I seen him, I thought, well, why have I got a 12 inch scar? <laughs> I said, what have you been doing for the last two years, Declan? You know, and that's the way we are, you know, he's dead, he's, he's down to earth, there's no yeah. Dr. Dunn, there's no Mr. Walsh, it's like, hello, Dec, hiya, and give him a big hug, and Phil's the same, so, in that respect, I've been really lucky, you know, and I do think it's down to the skills of the surgeons, and as you say, how often, and how, you know, how, how intricate the, the operations are, you know, because I'm reading, yeah, I'm reading stuff now, you know, people have had the whipples and it's come back into the liver and people have been operated on, you know, stage four and they've done the chemo and, you know, it's 10 years down the line. I'm thinking, wow, stage four, and you, you know, 10 years down the line, which is, as you know, it's pretty unheard of in the yeah. PC world, isn't it? You know, so... Yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating, you know, um, how people, you know, I, I mean... You know, we, we, you just got to do your research, you know, because there's a lot of really good doctors around the world yeah. that are in this. Um, and, you know, the, the, the other thing, and, and this is the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, there's so many groups, you know, you mentioned pancreatic cancer UK, there's, there's, 
94 groups around the world that have access to these centers. So if people do have questions, you know, reach out to a group, you know, they'll, they'll give you a referral of a top center, hopefully in your area. I got a question here for you, Sean, and I know you've mentioned family quite a bit. Uh, you mentioned your daughter and your partner. How was, you know, and I know this is a little bit hard. Uh, this might be a tough question. You know, you've got a young daughter and, and you were with Rachel for a long time, you know, going through this, you know, what? how was that for them? You know, especially for your daughter, maybe, I mean, being so young, I don't know, did she really understand it? And, you know, naturally been with Rachel for a long time. I mean, she knew what was going on, um, but like, how did you guys, what, what was that dynamic like while you guys were going through this? Um, well, after my weapon, Rachel, she's my rock, you know, she was my nurse, you know, she, she was waking up at two o'clock in the morning, you know, looking after me and my saying bags would be leaking and, you know, and the love that I've got for that lady is unbelievable, you know, as you say, we've been together 24 years, we were going to try and get married this year, but, but what's going on, you know, we might have to leave her, but she, without Rachel, she was outstanding, outstanding, honest to God, going, doing me little bits of food when I couldn't hardly eat, and um, my daughter Darcy, yeah, she was only, she was five at the time, um, yeah, we did tell her something, she knew that wasn't well, um, she came in to see me when I came onto the ward. Um, I, was, I think it was an ICU for him. Um, wasn't even twenty four hours because there was no there was no windows in there. And I wanted to look out because that June in the UK it was really really hot. <laughs> um, Darcy, yeah, um, she's been my inspiration. You know when people say, "Oh, you're inspiring, Sean. You've done this swim. You've done that." I'm not. I'm little Sean from Heighton. My daughter's my inspiration. Do you know? You know, as I said to you when I. We came downstairs after hearing the words pancreatic cancer, and I just turned around to round to Rachel and said, "Make sure someone, if you meet someone, that they look after me, me little Darcy, the way I look after the sort of thing." But yeah, my Darcy and my Rachel, they're my inspirations, and the rest of my family and my friends, and you know, guys like you, you know, doing what you're doing. You know, as you say, you've lost your dad. Um, Maggie Watts lost her husband, um, and her husband's dad. Um, there's there's loads there's lots of people like Ali Stunt who started Pancan Action up in the UK she had pancreatic cancer I think mm-hmm. it was about 10 or 12 years ago now you know and we were hopefully having a forum in Liverpool on it was this week actually um, where all the professors come from all over the northwest sort of thing and we're all going to meet up sort of thing um, but because of this COVID-19 you know we can't we can't meet up we can't get you know get the symptoms and the collaboration, as I call it, sort of thing, because I think of more pancreatic cancer charities stick together, you know, instead of concentrating on, on the same sort of thing, you know, why can't you do this and you do that? And, you know, like Pancan Action UK now, they've gone in, in partners with Pancan Scotland. Yeah, you know, so they've made, you know, they've made sort of thing, which I think is critical, you know, why, why put loads of money into the same sort of um schooling that you want to look at in pancreatic cancer where like you can do this you can do that and let's all share the data and information like going back to me with diagnosis and symptoms you know broken sleep why can't we look into that a little bit more or waking up um i think i was sick for about three times two months leading up to it like two o'clock in the morning i just thought i had too many sweets or too much food and obviously it wasn't it was the bile and everything else what was going on sort of thing so as you know Early diagnosis, that's what we're fighting for now. We're fighting for 21 days, like myself, 20 days, which is which is doable, but we just need the GPs behind us. We need everyone fighting the same cause instead of saying, oh, it's gallstones or it's viral or, or we have a whippy gobbler out. 
hold on, let's do a blood test. I know the cancer markers doesn't show up on many people. I think mine were 40 pre-Whipple, um, and they stayed a five post-Whipple. You know, when people's going to be in the thousands, I know that, but start giving people more blood tests, looking for cancer, you know, cancer markers. All right, it's, it's money, but, you know, looking forward down the line, you know, if I would have died at the age of 43, you know, we've got another 20 years left working-wise, so all the taxes and paying into the economy, and sure, you know, a couple of simple blood tests would more than equal itself out, you know, sort of thing, you know? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I got a question for you. You mentioned your grandfather, um, and you think that he probably passed the pancreatic cancer. Has genetics been any part of any time you've been going through this journey? Has any clinician talked to you about genetics? I know here in the United States, genetics has become kind of a big part of what we are doing now. And I know from talking to some folks abroad and in, in, in the UK and Australia, just recently here on the podcast, it has come up that it seems like they're a little bit behind us here in, the, in, in other parts of the world than we are here in the US. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry, no one's really mentioned genetics. Um, the only reason we think my granddad died is because he was very like me, he was very, built the same as me, you know, so we were thinking, you know, it was my granddad that sort of like, didn't pass it down, but it's heredity, you know, it's in the genes mm-hmm. sort of thing, but uh, I have asked about that, she's getting tested to genetics, but she's too young, and that's the only question I've asked about genetics, do you know? Have you uh, been you know, tested but, genetically? No, no one's ever mentioned it, no. Hmm. You see, if it was in my genes sort of thing, no, no one's ever mentioned that, do you know? That's fascinating. I mean, so here in the United States, um, it is now required, which is phenomenal, um, that every patient who is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer get germline tested. And the reason being is, and we are here in the States, uh, and globally, actually, which I, this is not about us, but I, I, I can just give you kind of a, a quick uh, overview of it. The reason being is that 10% close to 10% of the cases that are diagnosed of pancreatic cancer are related to some sort of genetic mutation. And we do know now that, you know, there's this large enough population to take a look at. And we know that there are families that, you know, have grandfather, you know, grandson, son, you know, or daughter that have, you know, the same disease that receive prominence of particular cancers. So we've been really involved at Project Purple in funding early detection for genetic predispositions and these genetic mutations that science has identified that are linked to pancreatic cancer. So it's just fascinating to me, um, you know, because we are trying to move the needle here in the U.S. with this approach, and maybe it's just us because we're so involved in, you know, early detection from a genetic standpoint that, you know, from talking to people from across the world now, that genetics really isn't a, isn't a part of the discussion, which it probably should be, and, and hopefully that the rest of the world gets on board. I, I think there is a big movement you know, not just pancreatic cancer, but if we look at all cancers, uh, you know, in terms of genetics, uh, because, you know, unfortunately your mom and dad met, they didn't know what their genes were. They had kids and, you know, you're given the genes from your family uh, above, you know, your parents. And the fascinating thing is a lot of times, 
you know, you have families that, you know, you have multiple siblings and one sibling will have particular genes and the, and the other sibling will not have those same genes. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily guaranteed that, you know, if you have a genetic mutation, Sean, uh, that it's passed on to your daughter, um, you know, which is, which is very interesting. And, and, you know, that's just, science doesn't know why that happens. It's, it's part of the evolutionary chain. So it's just interesting. I, I wanted to bring up genetics because we have talked to, a you know, we always talk about that um, here when we interview patients in the United States, because we have had guests on the podcast, quite frankly. We had a guy, uh, Kevin Chunard, we interviewed him about a year and a half ago, and he and his wife came into our studio, and he was battling stage four pancreatic cancer. His wife was ready to call, um, you know, hospice because he was so ill uh, from the disease and from the treatments, he couldn't even, he didn't have the strength to take his head off the pillow. And the doctor called and said, let's try one more thing. Let's, let's do genetic testing. And they genetic tested his, his, uh, tumor. And they realized he had a BRCA gene mutation, the BRCA gene, which is very common in, in breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and is also very common in pancreatic cancer. And so he came back positive and in pancreatic cancer, there's actually now a treatment protocol, and at the time this was evolving, that they were finding with BRCA-positive patients, the patients respond really well. They, they find that the tumor regresses um, and they have very good quality of life. Well, wouldn't you know, um, this gentleman was up at Dana-Farber in Boston, Massachusetts, and um, he went right on this treatment and immediately saw amazing results. And it just continued to happen. It continued to happen. He walked into our podcast. He had looked like he had played 18 rounds of golf. He was healthy. He was as full of life. His face was, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, thin. He was, you know, he was he looked great. And this all had to do because of the scientists and the doctors, you know, at Dana-Farber realizing, hey, let's do genetic testing. Now, this was before it was required. But so there's been a lot of studies, though, recently here in the United States that have talked about, you know, the, the success that these BRCA patients in particular, there's like six other genes um, that they've identified that they have this treatment protocol that patients just respond very well. Um, this gentleman is NED, believe it or not. You know, he was stage four, um, right. you know, and now he's NED. And this all goes because, you know, he, the scientists and the clinicians that he was working with at Dana Farber recognized, you know, that he has this genetic mutation and that, you know, it could benefit him and it, it did wonders. Now, this isn't the case for everyone. I know the statistics though are very high. Um, so that's where, you know, we, we always kind of talk about genetics a bit. Um, so it's just kind of interesting to see from afar across the pond, yeah. you know, and, and maybe that's something well, I know. I'll have, to, um, I'll have to mention this to, um, Obviously, our charity and see 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 what they what they were yeah. what they're up to sort of thing definitely yeah now I'm as I say I'm definitely uh, a believer in genetics as you say it's not for every cancer but you know Correct. it can help yeah you know as you say you'd say anything you know you do anything you know we've got to try and get these figures up now from ten percent in the next ten years let's try and get them up to 20 percent survival rate of PC that's that's the goal anyway between us use um, I'm in touch with a couple of people in Australia. 
Um, there's a professor in India that's looking into genetics, actually. We um, got hold of him on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. So I think after the COVID-19, I think we should all have a big mass meeting somewhere. We'll pick, pick somewhere in the world and get all the cancer charities over, mate, and we'll just, I don't know. Absolutely. Collaboration's the one, isn't it? You know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to. I, I got two more questions here for you, Sean. Really, three. Um, one's real easy. The next two are a little bit harder. Um, talk. We talked a little bit about social media, and, and I know. Originally, I think when people get diagnosed, at least here in the United States, they they have this tendency to go to the internet. And look at the oh, internet. Yeah, don't Google nothing. Don't, don't ever Google, Google nothing. So, no, everyone dies. I got told that. <laughs> and, and I know you mentioned some groups, you know, your Whipple Warrior group there. But I want to ask about the power of social media in a positive way. And I know you're very active on Twitter. Uh, let's talk a little bit. That's how we connected, actually, on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I mean, depending on which uh, medium you use, whether it's Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. I know now there's TikTok. There's so many. It's it's kind of this, yeah. I just yeah. like using the term of a social media because it's constantly evolving. But let's talk about that in a positive way. How has that been for you? Um, social media, it did get a bit too much, you know, as I say, I mentioned the, the ex-footballer who played for Everton, uh, Neville Southall, he phoned me one day because what Neville does, I got hold, I got introduced to Neville by Maggie Watts, Hope is Contagious, and what Neville Southall does on Twitter, every now and again, he gives his Twitter accounts over for a couple of hours to different charities or whatever sort of organisation that he believes in. So this night, he'd given his, his um, Twitter feed over for two hours to Maggie Watts, Hope is Contagious, and I started seeing all, you know, the symptoms of pancreatic cancer. So obviously I became um, very good friends with Maggie Watts and Neville Southall. But even just, you know, getting the, getting the awareness, you know, the symptoms of pancreatic cancer and just getting, like, messages off people, you know, like the two sisters, um, never forget them. One of the sisters died of pancreatic cancer. And the other one had just been diagnosed stage three. She was about to have a whipple and she got in touch with me and she's, she's doing really well now. So I think it's just mainly getting given that belief to people, you know, PC is not, look, you know, I'm not trying to be big headed here, but I've done my whipple, I've done this, I've done everything as fast as I can do. You know, I've been, when they say they use something like 8% of your brain capacity, I think I used about 20%, 25% doing what I've done, you know, with the chemo and the whipple operation. But yeah, Social media has been really positive. Um, I've met a lot of people on there, a lot of inspirational people. There's a guy that joined me in the pool for me swim called Speedo Mick. Um, he's just walked the whole of the UK in his pair of swimming trunks in the middle of winter. And he just joined me in the pool. So guys like him just inspire me, you know, and there's so many inspirational people out there. I've lost a couple of so-called friends, but I've gained many more. Um, I've met Southall, I've met... That's Anthony Fowler. Um, Anthony Fowler's even put pancreatic cancer T-shirts on. Neville Southall, is, as I say, he's given his Twitter feed up to me, Maggie Watts again, um, a couple of months ago. Um, yeah, it's just been it's been really positive. But as I said, it did get a bit too heavy for me when I was trying to do that swim and coming home and trying to train for the swim and going on social media and I'd be up till two o'clock in the morning and I'm trying to get practicing to do the swim. So it did, it did get hold of me a bit. So I had to take a little break from it, but now 
I want to try and start doing more and more because of the COVID-19. It was trying to put spins on it. Like, I'll go and get dressed up later in my Spider-Man suit and, you know, and put a picture of the symptoms up or do something, you know, always trying to change things around just so people go, oh, look at him. Oh, let's have a look at that next to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I feel a bit like that. Or, and there's been people that have seen me and, you know, they've had the whipples and without seeing what I've done, you know, they would have died. So if I save one person, you know, my job's done, isn't it? You know, it's powerful. As you say, yeah, that's it, isn't it? You know, we can use social media sometimes to our benefit, especially with the awareness campaign, the symptoms campaign. I know there's loads of numpties on social media, you know, very jealous people. You know, that's just life, isn't it? There's always that's, that's assholes. It. Yeah, there they're, you go, they're, you know, they're everywhere. They're everywhere, you know. But I think I think it's powerful if you reach one person. And I've always said, you know, our mission, you know, as long if we can save one person, you know, then we know we're on the right path. That's it, mate. That's such, it. Such a powerful. Last question for you. I mean, this is a hard one. Um, and it's and there's no right or wrong answer to this, Sean. And it's a little bit of a loaded question is, what is your definition of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? Um, knowing what I know now or before? Right now. Right now. Pancreatic cancer is a bastard. It's a horrible disease. It's that deep-rooted. By the time most of the symptoms come on, you know, you're stage four, you're trying to have chemotherapy. I don't know many people who've had chemotherapy and had the Whipple and survived. You know, we need to get this diagnosis. We need the Whipple first. We need the CBD in conjunction with the chemotherapy. That's just a definite for me now, Dino. I'm going to keep doing my awareness campaign and whatever else, but I need to get the CBD involved into not just not just cancer, you know, there's loads of other benefits. But yeah, pancreatic cancer is a horrible Bastard. It is. Horrible. Horrible. Hate it. Hate it. Um, also, Dino, I forgot to tell you, one of my good family friends, who's more like my uncle, my dad's friend, John McDonough, um, he died in 2011. Pancreatic cancer. He was a jet set. He was all over the world as a market manager for different firms. And that's who we dedicated that swim to. You know, his wife came along, his daughter came along, his grandkids came along. Then he never seen his grandkids. He died before his grandkids came along. And when I was swimming, I was just looking up at them. It was just, that kept me going as well, do you know? Because that guy was amazing. I remember I was about nine or ten. And because my birthday's on Boxing Day, they used to get me like a double present. And he bought me this big, massive dictionary once. When Sean, you learn one or two words a day out of that. He said, you'd be a very clever man, but obviously... I never. I think I've done it for two weeks and then put the dictionary away and started playing with some of my toys, most probably. Yeah, so pancreatic cancer, you bastard. It is. It's horrible. It's horrible. You know, it's just, it's so quick and it's horrible. Horrible. Thank you. Last question for you, Sean. If someone is listening to this and they want to learn more about your journey and connect with you, uh, maybe it's about CBD, maybe it's about joining you in the water in their bathing suit in November in the UK or just talk to you and connect with you. Where is the best place for them to do that? I know we've mentioned Twitter a bit. Um, I know you're, you're pretty active on Twitter. I, I got you on Instagram here today. Um, but if someone wanted to connect with you, where could they do that? Um, just private message me on Twitter at spider Walshy. You know, I'm always on Twitter. Well, not always on Twitter, but I'd rather be on Twitter than Facebook because there's loads of moaners on Facebook. So, yeah, anyone's got any questions about recovery, diet, 
crayon tablets, the enzyme replacement tablets. Um, the only tablets I take is the crayon and the Ampazole, like the acid tablet. I take one of them a day and I take about 15 crayon a day with various meals that I have. So anyone's got any questions about recovery, diet, fitness, prehab, rehab, CBD, just message me on Twitter at SpiderWalshy. Not a problem. I'll talk to anyone. I'll help anyone out there. You know, you know that. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much. Uh, I know it was. Uh, I was a little confused with the timing, but we got this done. It was we awesome. Yeah. Awesome to have you on the podcast. And appreciate you giving me the opportunity and us here at Project Purple to share your journey. And I've been taking notes here this whole time. And I, I think one of the things that you said that was just so powerful for me, and I'm going to end with this, is your comment of the second bite of the cherry. And, and that is so true and so to heart uh, with what you've gone through. So from all of us here at Project Purple, for our audience listening at home, thank you for allowing us to share your journey here at Project Purple on our podcast. Thank you, Dino. One more thing I've always said, never, ever give up. I love it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. As we say here, that's a wrap. If you like what you hear, please follow us where you listen to your podcast, share our podcast. And until next time, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm -hmm.